All right, run it. I wonder what you mean when you use the word I. Use the word I. Kick a break. We have an aversion to ourselves and to what's happening inside us. Inside us. I've been very interested in this problem for a long, long time. Something settles. Today's guest is an amazing human. Uh, her name is Margot Lydon or Lydon, depending on how you want to mispronounce it, which I often do. And she's a friend of mine and a colleague of mine. She's the CEO of Superfriend, uh, an organization I also sit on the board for. And Superfriend's mission is to create a mentally healthy workplace uh, environment across Australia for all Australians. They initially started their focus in the insurance and superannuation industry, but now extend beyond that. And I am very honored and privileged to, to do that work with them. Margot is an incredibly esteemed and credible uh, person when it comes to workplace well-being. Margot holds a Masters of Science Positive Organization Development and Change degree uh, from the Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio, and a Bachelor of Business degree from the University of Queensland. She sits on several boards, including the Mentally Healthy Workplace Alliance Group here in Australia. She was a Telstra Business Award finalist for Woman of the Year in the Social Enterprise category. And I just think uh, she, more than anything, is the right person to take us through a masterclass in mental health at work because Superfriend just released Australia's largest workplace wellbeing study. And I don't think there'd be anyone more valid or correct to have uh, in the country right now to talk about to talk about workplace mental health than her because of how amazingly comprehensive this report is. And she's going to give us the insights to where things are going well, where things aren't going so well, what the impact of COVID is, et cetera, et cetera. So if you're a business leader, I would definitely tune in because we go through the exact tactics and strategies you can implement to create uh, a better environment for your people to thrive, which results in higher productivity, less churn, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm excited to introduce her to you today. So without further ado, here's Margot. You've been around the mental health space for a while now, haven't you? Yeah, look, 20 years um, I've been in and around the mental health sector and suicide prevention sector and started sort of the ten, first 10 years working in a private outpatient facility where we treated people with eating disorders. And we had a really person-centred approach to treatment. Um, it was a bit of ahead of its, of its time. Um, you know, when you go back sort of 10 plus years, 20 years, into uh, treatment. It was very much around how we supported the individual, their family, their friends, and anyone else in their circle of support, including their puppy dogs or rabbits or whatever, you know, school counsellors or friends or whoever. Mm. Um, we had uh, over 100 clients um, at the peak and we had clients from all over Australia. And part of my role was to 
because I'm not clinically trained. Part of my role, though, was to uh, really provide support to family um, and carers as well as um, as the clients uh, from a day-to-day basis, from a you know non-clinical perspective. And I took about 15,000 inquiry calls um, about our program. So in 10 years, when you spend sort of 45 minutes to an hour with 15,000 people, you hear a lot of stories of lived experience and, and people mm. going through really tough times. Uh, and I guess that's where my passion and love for making a real difference in people's lives, not just giving people fact sheets that take them nowhere and really just give them a very high level of what they already know. And this is about what are the tangible practical actions that actually help make a difference in people's lives and whether that's the individual themselves experiencing a, a mental health condition or whether it's, you know, someone who loves them and, and supports them and cares for them and, and wants to actually understand and make a difference even more. So it's um, that's really where a lot of the passion from my perspective comes from. And was the passion there before that role? Had you had, to what you're comfortable sharing, had you had lived experience up until that point? Look, I have had um, my own lived experience. I've, I experience anxiety and depression and, and certainly have um, quite significant OCD tendencies from time to time. Um, but I guess the, you know, like many people with lived experience, um, you know, you kind of go, I have an enormous amount of empathy and compassion for others, but not for myself. Um, so I really hadn't, I guess, joined the dots or connected um, with my own mental mental health issues and my own well-being issues until I walked in that door and, and needed to be authentic and walk the talk. It's mm. very hard to sit across the floor often, sitting on the floor with a client in, in you know, some level of crisis, emotional crisis or, or whatever, and not have that sense of, hang on a second, what am I doing about my own well-being here? as I'm asking someone to look after themselves, despite the fact that's the very last thing they want to actually do because their illness inside their head is, is telling them to do everything opposite. So there's a, there was a real, um, you know, I I talk about having 10 years of unpaid therapy um, where I didn't have to pay for it, but I, I had the benefit of uh, reflective um, opportunities of my own well-being uh, during that 10 years and being taught by the most incredible people on the planet and they were our clients um, so generous and kind and and vulnerable and open and honest and challenging and just amazing human beings um, and that taught me a lot about the human spirit and that we are far more resilient than we think we are uh, we're far more courageous than we think we are and a lot of people particularly when they have the dignified support that's somewhat educated, not even overly educated, but somewhat educated um, around them, it, it's life-saving, it's life-changing, it's it's phenomenal. And then mm. you see, you know, a client walk back in the door, you know, two or three years after they finish treatment with you with a baby in their arms and you think, oh, my God, you know, this person was on the on death's door um, and, you know, they bring they bring this incredible sense of, I'm going to get emotional now, a sense of life and, and you know, what life is actually all about and that's that connection and belonging um, mm-hmm. and finding meaning and purpose in the world and that's a different path for everybody. I think the other thing, Mitch, that really um, I, I have to mention is, you know, just having people in my life who I've lost to suicide mm-hmm. um, and supporting really dear people loved ones um, who have lost family members to suicide. Um, My best friend in the whole wide world um, lost her brother uh, 12 years ago to suicide. And 
um, there's not a day where I don't think of him. You know, I grew up with him. He was, um, I've known him my entire life. Um, so, um, you know, there's not a day where that doesn't also add to the motivation of making a real difference. And I think the opportunity that we have when we combine our love and our passion for making making people's lives better um, and really recognising the challenges and the opportunities that mental health brings, um, whether it's an illness end of the spectrum or a health end of the spectrum, both, I believe, bring challenge and opportunities. Uh, and I think if we can bring that into our world of work and workplaces um, and particularly during, you know, challenging times, whether it is a global pandemic or a, or a um, recession or whether it's a, you know, economic downturn at another time in our lives or whether it's an economic upturn and we've got demands that are, you know, blowing that business out of the water, I think we've got to recognise the role that we have as humans in the first instance beyond getting the job done. Totally, totally. And I, I can feel... I can feel all the different layers of care there from you and how you ended up in a space like this. And it's incredibly evident in the way that you conduct yourself every day um, working alongside you. I have the privilege to do that. And um, just how much, uh, not just knowledge, but impact you have in the work you do at Superfriend. Um, and very few people kind of walk the walk, uh, but you definitely do that. And I, I take my hat off to you. And um I, I, I hold what you just said to me with, with care um, because it is very real. Um, Thank you. That's just such beautiful words. It means a lot coming from you too. Thank you. Oh, of course, of course. Um, and we, uh, I, I feel very, very lucky to be able to, to speak to you, not just as a, as a friend and a colleague, as someone with lived experience, as someone with huge experience in the industry, but as someone who now runs um, Superfriend, which uh, I've mentioned in the intro. Um, and Superfriend's work is truly outstanding particularly in the corporate space. And you've recently, only last week, launched uh, a, yet again, Australia's largest mental wellbeing survey in the workplace arena. And I would say you out of any person in the country right now would have more of an insight into corporate mental health in Australia and where we stand than anyone else. And so I, I wanna start off by saying uh, or asking you from the 2020 results of the corporate wellbeing study or what you call indicators of a thriving workplace. Can you give people a bit of an overview as to what that study was and what the indicators are? Certainly. Um, so this is Australia's largest and longest running workplace mental health and wellbeing survey. And we survey over 10,000 Australians every year. It is a representative sample of the Australian working population. So we align it to the ABS, Australian Bureau of Stats uh, categories around industry and age and other demographics. And what we, what we really are trying to do is measure and track how mentally healthy or how thriving workplaces are. Now, when we talk about mentally healthy workplaces, there are absolutely 
indicators that uh, speak to specific mental health initiatives, but there are also other indicators, and this is how we've sort of grouped all of our indicators. There are other indicators that talk to things like leadership or talk to things like capability. That's not necessarily just about mental health, but it's about how we interact with people. So we've uh, created 40 scientifically validated by the University of Queensland indicators. Now, to give you an example, one of them is people say hello and use please and thank you. So we're not talking rocket science, nor are we talking timely or expensive necessarily. There are certainly indicators about good return to work policies when somebody has had um, a mental health condition and are needing to come back in well supported into the workplace. But, you know, by and large, we're talking about how work and workplaces um, really support their entire workforce uh, in, you know, really providing the opportunity for people to be their best, do good work and go home with energy to spare. And that's really what it's measuring. So we've been running this survey for six years. The last three years, the indicators have remained consistent. We haven't changed a single indicator. And so we've been tracking Australia's progress towards what we would define as a, as a thriving workplace or a thriving state. So it's a score out of 100. Uh, at a national level, and we're currently in 2020 scoring 65.1, uh, which is up 2.4 points from last year. So who would have thought in the middle of a global pandemic and the emergence of a recession and, and off the back of drought and bushfires and other, you know, horrendous things that have happened globally as well as here in Australia, that we'd actually see more businesses, more industries, more companies and workers moving towards a much more thriving workplace. What we've done with the 40 indicators, as I said, is sort of break them up into five domains. And it's important to mention those because it really gives you a sense of how we classify or define a mentally healthy workplace. So we have um, eight indicators in each of these. One's under leadership, one's under connectedness, one's under policy, and policy is about policy and practices in action. We've got one under capability and we've got the last one under culture. And what we know is that, you know, workplace mental health is a construct. There's multiple factors to it and it's constantly dynamic and moving. So it's not just about saying, oh, we've got an EAP tick, we're done. This is about recognising that leaders have a role, as do workers have a role, as do policy and practices in, in action have a role, as do, you know, how we build that sense of connectedness across our workplaces. That has a role. It's all about it being interconnected. And that's a really important factor for workplaces to consider. Is It's a bit of a journey, um, even though some people hate that word. It is a bit of a journey. It's a process. It's a progress. Uh, and we are measuring that progress across Australia. And because of the sample size, we're able to do deep dives into particular uh, different industries, different demographics, uh, see how casual workers are, you know, experiencing workplace uh, workplaces versus part-time and full-time, just as, as examples. Yeah, because I, you know, I speak to a lot of HR managers and CEOs and stuff on an almost daily basis. And people say, like, what is a mentally healthy workplace? Uh, and I, for some reason, whenever I think about that question, you know, when someone says, well, what's a mentally healthy workplace? You can't really define it. And I say, that's like saying what's good parenting. You can't really define it. Maybe long ago, but there are literally books on this stuff now. <laughs> and like, of course, it's subjective and it's going to change from person to person, culture to culture. But the work that Superfriend is doing in this report literally gives you almost an ingredient list of not only the uh, things to measure, but the things to do to help create that that work that working environment. Now, 
So just to summarize what Margot said, there are 40 indicators that sit in five categories that are scientifically validated and has been running for six years. So we have a pretty good hold on this, right? So Margot also mentioned that 65, 65% of workplace, oh, sorry, we're out of 65 out of 100 points is where we sit on average on the scale, which is up a little bit, which is great. I mean, up anything in this environment is good. But technically speaking, a thri you know, quote unquote thriving workplace, what you would determine as thriving is one that sits at 80 points or above on the scale. And only 5% of workplaces have met that threshold. So can mm -hmm. you talk to me a bit about what, what is a workplace that would be sitting at 65? What would we, would we even call them mentally healthy? And what's the difference between someone who's thriving? So we would certainly say that, you know, 65 out of 100 is, or 65.1 out of 100 is, um, is better than where we've been. Uh, more workplaces are there for leaning in and supporting their workers. And, you know, we've got some statistics that support from the research that supports that. But for those organisations that are in the thriving category, 80 or above, what we're seeing that's quite different is that they are leaning in and doing, doing and that's the underscore, doing a lot more intangible actions across their entire business to support the well-being of their entire workforce. So we um, would classify out of the 40 indicators, we've identified about 11 of the indicators that are really tangible and practical. And they're practical for the business to be able to control and own and make them fit for purpose for their business, which is really important for stickability and sustainability of those indicators. And what we are seeing is the organisations that are scoring 80 or above are ones that are putting at least eight of these actions in place across their workplace. So one of those actions is an example, and it's actually one of the ones that has the biggest ripple on the pond effect, is that people leaders, and this is leaders across all levels across an organisation, regularly, underscore regularly, receive mental health and wellbeing training. So what we know from that uh, particular indicator is when organisations have implemented that, one is it sits within the policy area. So even in an economic downturn, it doesn't get stopped. It actually mm, continues. It's baked Really in. important. Um, and secondly, it's about all people leaders across a business so that you have this whole of business approach. And we know from the science and the research that integrated approach taking a five in five workers who go to work every single day approach, not only the, the one in five who might be experiencing a mental health condition, or in our case, 60% of the workforce experiencing a mental health condition, as we've determined through this survey, um, we are taking a whole of business and whole of workforce approach. So it's helping people who may not be uh, classified you know, by by medical practitioners as having a mental health condition. It may be catching people who are at risk, who have poor mental health. It might be also keeping those that are well, well. And that's really important for business. Um, so we know that when we've got those organisations, that 5% of those organisations putting in place eight or more, productivity goes up. People love their jobs. They want to stay. <laughs> um, the index Index score goes up, but it also goes up across all of the five domains. We have decreased mental health stigma, um, which is really important in a workplace because it is one of the hardest things to shift. Uh, we have decreased levels of staff experiencing negative or harmful stress, and that might be workload stress, it might be customer interaction stress, it might be a whole range of things. And really importantly, we have a decreased number of people who have a mental health condition who attribute their work and their work 
workplace to causing or exacerbating their mental health condition. Uh, so, you know, all of the social and economic indicators for those organisations that are thriving um, are absolutely up when we've mm. got those organisations that are investing. And I'm not talking about necessarily monetarily investing, but putting this as a priority across their entire business in workplace mm. mental health. That, that's really key. It's not just spending the money, it's spending the time and shifting the DNA of an organization. And as you've just articulated, it is worth it. it that, that I think a lot of organizations avoid some macro structural skeletal changes because it's going to be a short-term possible growing pain it's going to hurt in the short term to to change some of these big things but as you've said it is so worth it because of the the benefits that you get not just to your people but to your bottom line and so we really want to see i guess and i'm sure that you would support this that more organizations qualify for that 80 or above score so that that five percent of workplaces um turns into i mean ideally a hundred percent of workplaces are thriving right and I don't think, even though there's a good news story that we have seen an, an increase in that thriving score by a little bit, I don't think we should settle for where we're currently at. You know, I think all organizations should be striving for thriving, not just sustaining or surviving. Um, and and so you mentioned leadership training is possibly or probably the, the single greatest one tactic you can do that's going to benefit every domain uh, of the organization and i want to pick back and every worker and i think that's one of the key things mitch Mm. is that this is is something that improves the leader's capability and confidence as a leader and it it matters it makes a difference to every single worker it builds trust authenticity all of the really good stuff that we know that leaders of today really need to be walking the talk in and do you think that the reason why that's so beneficial is because most people, most employees don't expect their organization to solve their issue and that all the perks like kombucha and green smoothies and salads are a nice to have. Their biggest want is just to be able to bring more of their real self to work and be able to have open and honest conversations with their manager so that they feel cared about. I, do you think that's why leadership training is so important? Because it is the most fundamental aspect of, I would take an empathetic culture and the ability to feel seen as a full human over pretty much any other benefit. And we know that from research um, beyond this study that that workers really value being heard. Workers really value doing something meaningful and purposeful. When you think about leaders, you know, we're brought up in this society, in Australian society, to look up to people. You know, whether it's at our school and we look up to the year 12s um, or whether it's, you know, as we enter the workforce, we look up to, you know, who's that CEO or that senior leader. And we've really got to recognise that leaders have an incredible opportunity to influence behaviour and change across an entire workforce. And so what this leadership training really does is it does give the skill and the capability to the leader, but it also affects that culture of care. It affects that the way that the organisation actually operates and what it prioritises. What I love to see, um, and we know that the science again behind is behind this, is that when leaders balance the head and the heart in decisions, mm. and in fact, when our brain toggles between the two, 
And when we're talking heart, we're talking about empathy, we're talking about compassion, we're talking about how this particular decision will influence and impact the emotional and well-being of our people. When we're talking head, we're often talking the numbers and the you know, what is it going to do to the bottom line or or what particular risk factor that we're trying to, um, you know, mitigate against. So when we actually combine our head and our heart in good decision-making, we make better decisions. And what this training does is it amplifies or lifts up the visibility and the capability of a little bit more heart in the decision-making. You're so talking to the right guy for heart. I know, man. Um, so when we when we're making, yeah, there it is. Um, when we when we actually are making good decisions, we are, you know, our brains are toggling between the two. And I think what we've got to recognise is that we've got a workforce, particularly in twenty twenty, that have experienced a greater sense of connection than ever before, and we've got the scores to prove it. Um, leaders are much more visible, accountable, a lot more willing to listen. They're backing in their teams and really championing their teams. They're being a lot more authentic in their own well-being. We're seeing leaders that are um, considered on a level, much more level playing field than ever before. You know, the the opportunity to actually uh, sit in um, inside the lounge room of your your boss um, as they're working yeah, right. from home. Um, and not have to knock on the door on the, you know, three floors up kind of stuff. Um, you know, it just puts everybody on that level playing field. So we've got this incredible pivot in the way that we are seeing and experiencing leadership in Australia. And that, I think, provides us with a tremendous opportunity to look at the leaders of tomorrow and how the current leaders of today, through good mental health and wellbeing training, that is fit for purpose for the business that they're running, it's not all about just 101 sort of stuff. This is about recognising that some businesses will interact with customers or have staff who are at much higher risk of poor mental health, mental illness, suicide, et cetera. So we've got to have it fit to a purpose. But when leaders actually have that good quality training on a regular basis, it allows for much more trusted conversations, hmm. more vulnerability, for better supports to be put in place, for accommodations to be made to allow for flexible work arrangements, for a whole host of reasons, all of the good stuff that leads to productivity. So this is this is why it's so critically important we see leaders are well-trained. And it is your best hmm. bang for your buck, without it, a doubt. It, it is your best bang. And I want to come back to, to this positive action story um, at the end. But before we get into some of these amazing solutions, I want to keep teasing out some of the some of the structural things that we need to change. And I think for me, what was super alarming is that we've seen a rise um, to 60 percent of Australian workers experiencing a mental ill health condition, which is up nine percent um, year on year. But yeah, like that's alarming that it's up that much. But I think for me. If you look at the national average, and it's pretty much a global average, about one in five people, um, depending on what paper you read, perhaps one in four, but let's go with 20% of people of the general population. That means that three times uh, the amount of the general population compared to the working population are experiencing a mental ill health condition. What do you think companies are doing wrong at the moment um, and by the way, that, that's not necessarily saying that work has caused it. We'll get into causation in a second because we know, well, let's just get into it now. So 43% of the, 
of um, of those people affected by mental ill health, 43% of that 60%, have said that their workplace has caused or aggravated a mental ill health condition, which to me was alarming because, you know, I think the number one role of workplace mental health is don't make someone worse. If you didn't even support them supporting themselves, I, I say you never need to fix someone's illness. Just don't make them worse and help them help themselves. But where by those stats, what we're seeing is we've got a higher portion of Australia who are in the working population affected and half of them saying that the workplace caused it. So what are these workplaces doing wrong, do you think? Or what should workplaces be avoiding? And are they acting illegally? Well, I think we've got uh, laws in Australia and we have had for quite some time that um, every workplace, every employer needs to provide a psychologically safe work environment. Now, let's just unpack that for a moment. Mm. The psychological safety of a workplace is actually not only the employer's responsibility, but it's the worker's responsibilities as well. Agreed. So this is, this is very much a mutual contract of coming to work that you're going to turn up and you're, you as a worker are not, necess- are not going to harm uh, a colleague. And so that speaks to the bullying and harassment and and those sort of um, types of behaviours that we know are damaging and toxic and really harmful. Job strain, job demand, all that stuff, yeah. Absolutely. So I think we've got the laws are in place and we've got to recognise that, um, you know, the vast majority of workplaces are definitely um, not causing, um, you know, harm to people. But we do have this proportion of, of Australian workers who do say that their current workplace is either causing or worsening their mental health condition. Now, it may not be to the point under the law that it is able to be prosecuted, so it may not result in a work work cover claim or it may not result in a life insurance claim because people have insurance through their superannuation. But I think the very fact that we've got 43% of people with a lived experience of mental health condition being uh, attributing their mental health worsening because of their workplace is atrocious. Mm. When we actually look at that as a whole of population, Mitch, and compared it to last year, it's actually we are getting a little bit better. So last year, we would say in 2019, about, and it's just under 22% of the workforce, so this is the entire workforce, 22% of the workforce would say that their mental health condition was worsened or caused by their workplace. This year, we're down to 17%. So we're heading in the right direction, and that's because we've got better connectedness scores, better leadership scores. We've got actually all five domain scores have actually gone up and hence the national scores gone up. Um, but I think coming back to your point is that we've got to recognise what it is that that is causing people's mental health condition to be worse. Now, again, from this report, which you can download from the Superfriend website, some of the data is in there to actually um, tell you. So organisations and industries where we've got high casualised workers, as an example, these workers are feeling disconnected from their team. They're not seeing the mental health initiatives in place and they're not experiencing those practical actions in, in, in place in their workplaces. They're feeling disconnected from their leaders. Um, they're dealing with incivility, so they're not being treated with respect uh, and dignity in the workplace. So they're experiencing work in a much more harmful way. So we've got to look at what are the factors that are causing particular cohorts to feel um, feel that they're you know and experience that their mental health is declining. 
I think the other end of the spectrum is to look at some of the industries. Um, so what are some of the industries that have been hardest hit this year? Um, and those are industries that also employ casual workers, such as hospitality, retail, etc. So the arts, arts industry is, is another big one and tourism and so on. So we've really got to have a look at uh, recognising that there are many workplaces who are making sure that their people are well, they're doing some great job, you know, a great job in connectedness and, and all of the good things, but there are parts of the workforce that are uh, their mental health is declining and it is far too many Australians, without a doubt. And so um, I'm going to ask the question that everyone's thinking, which is, but how has COVID affected these scores? And we're going to get to that in just a second. But uh, can you, because I like threes and I know my listeners love, just tell me the answer. Um, can you say what are three things that workplaces are doing wrong? Not yet how they fix it, we'll get to that. But what do you think are three um, things that workplaces are doing are doing poorly at? So I would say not training people leaders uh, would mm -hmm. be a number one. Uh, we've only got 12% of uh, the Australian workforce who strongly agree that that's actually in place in their workplace. Okay. So not training um, on a regular basis people leaders. I think we've got workplaces where uh, the head and the heart is out of balance and we're making far too many head decisions um, and that's having a um, detrimental consequence to people's wellbeing. Now, that could turn up in bad job design, workload, stress uh, that's of a negative type of stress on a prolonged and dangerous level, uh, those sort of things. The, um, the other thing that I think is that workplaces are not prioritising workplace mental health and wellbeing. And I would say that as a result of um, really recognising that we've got a long way to go uh, for workplaces that are, you know, putting in place some tangible actions to, to make a difference. So those are certainly the top three things is I think mm. it's how do we embed good work practices. At the end of the day, this is how we treat each other. This is how we make decisions. This is about what capability, what do we ask of people when we give them a job to do and how we support them in doing a good job. Um, that's what this comes down to. And, mm. you know, to me, this is about understanding your own business um, and co-designing what we could be doing collectively as our team, our organisation, um, to actually improve it and asking your own people when you've got limited budget and resources it's amazing what people come up with to make solutions that oh, actually yeah. make a real difference i get asked all the time um hey you know we we're here to work like you know we this isn't necessarily a charity in our case it is but we're here to work we're here to do a job we can't baby our people um, and they say, how do you know if it's the job that's causing the stress or that person just isn't handling a normal workload? How, how do you determine those two things? How, how would you respond to something like that? It comes down to three questions that you ask. And that is, what do you need from me as your leader to support you to do the job that we've employed you to do? So you've applied for this job and, and this is a really good entry question. Like when somebody first starts, You've applied for this job. You've got this job. This is exciting times. But what do you need from me as your leader to do the job that we've asked you to do? Number two is what is it that you're going to do to support yourself and your own well-being to do the job that you're going to do? So that's that mutual piece. And then the third question, which is really important, like a three-legged stool, you don't ask it, you fall off it, um, is when things don't go as planned, 
how are you how is that going to turn up and how do you want me to approach you and how are we going to come to solutions together so it's got nothing to do with about mental illness it's got nothing to do with mental health it has got to do with how do i support you to do your job how are you going to support yourself to do the job and if things don't go okay and let's face it you know we all make mistakes there are times when we're not our best how is it that i'm going to know that you're not at your best, you're not coping? What are some of those signals and signs? And how do you want me to approach you? How are we going to solve that together? So it's really really, leaning in, leaning into those hard conversations up front. Well, I wouldn't even say they're hard. I think they're about getting to know someone. (laughs) I think it's about, you know, building trust and vulnerability. And, you know, let's turn that around and, and this is how you're going to see me as your leader. This is how I'm not, when I'm not at my best, and trust me, my team know me when I'm not at my best. You know, I get snappy, I get direct, I get, you know, my anxiety is up, um, et cetera. So I'm, I'm not a great person when I'm not at my best. So how you can, ex, um, just, you know, begin a relationship with somebody that's a work relationship that is focused on the work, not on outside life, but focused on the work and how you get to know that person and they get to know you as a leader. Mm. Yeah, I think the key there is, Um, the person has to fulfill the inherent requirements of the role in which they're employed to do, period. And if they, hopefully, if it is a good fit, you will be able to support each other by being able to attain that. Another, I think your three suggestions are amazing. Uh, An extension to that is I always ask, you probably have more than one person in that role employed in the organization. So I would look at, are other people in that role giving the same feedback? Because if you've got nine account managers out of 10, for example, complaining that they are hanging by a thread, you've probably got a job design issue. If you've got one of those 10 complaining they're not doing well, you might have a role fit issue or a person going through a hard time, which you would individually manage to see if they can get up to speed and you would use reasonable adjustments and time off to accommodate, uh, hopefully a longer lasting solution. And if that doesn't work, then we would look at alternatives. Maybe that person's in the wrong industry, uh, who knows? But I think on top of your questions, which is leaning into what does success look like from the start and, and being clear that this is a relationship not a transaction is really key and then also using insights and data to see is this systemic or is this more individual and so talking sorry yeah go please respond to that yeah i I was going to say i think it is about um really at the core of it how do the workers inside my business my organization experience my organization which speaks to the heart of a culture, which speaks to the heart of how they experience leadership, uh, which speaks to the heart of how they experience each other in a sense of belonging, connectedness and purpose and meaning of my work and how does that fit to the broader, bigger picture of what we're trying to achieve together um, as an organisation. So to me, this is really, and this is where the indicators um, are are absolutely critical, is that it does give an organisation a really good snapshot as how do your people experience experience mm. their work their workplace is not about an engagement score this is not an engagement type of survey this is about how do people experience the work in the workplace across yeah. another, of these five domains and the 40 indicators mm. and so let's let's 
talk about a big experience, which is the COVID experience. How do you think it's impacted the, the numbers this year? What are the what are kind of the, the, the not so greats and what are the actual unexpected positives? So I'll start with the unexpected positives because you know me, Mitch, I'm an optimist and I'm optimist and through. in my cup of optimism. Um, the I think we've had an enormous number of silver linings. We've had Australia and Australian businesses pivot on a dime way back in March and we've had the opportunity for people to experience their work, their work colleagues and their workplaces very differently. And by and large, we are seeing that the vast majority of Australian workers' mental health and wellbeing has improved. Um, we are seeing people's physical health improved. Uh, we're seeing productivity for some go up. And we're certainly seeing our connectedness score amongst the other five uh, domains also go up. Now, I'll speak to connectedness because it is, to me, the probably the, the critical heart as to why we've seen the scores go up this year in COVID. And that is we've had this incredible level playing field everybody like in a natural disaster you take the bushfires as an example um only parts of australia experience the bushfire yes we all sort of sat on our couches if we weren't directly experiencing it and you know our hearts absolutely bled for for our fellow australians um and the beautiful wildlife and all of the damage and and the destruction but covid is impacting every single one of us and yeah. Although we're experiencing it differently, um, you know, I'm a, a one in four of Australian households are lone person households, that's, that's me. But many others um, are in households where there's three, five, six, you know, more people. So we experience things differently. Some people are homeschooling, some are not, et cetera. But what I think it's done is it's given us this much stronger sense overall in community. And one of the leading indicators that we actually know, we've done some factor analysis, is that um, for connectedness, work feels like a community beyond getting the job done. Now, I don't know a single year where that hasn't come to the fore in nearly every conversation a lot of people have been having with their colleagues or with their boss or whatever. So that sense of community beyond getting the job done, this sense of I belong, this sense of connectedness, um, COVID has given us a language and given us an opportunity to connect in on that. What I hope going forward is that we really carry that into the future mm. and we design the world of work job design as well as going back to work design as well as what does work look like uh, into the future because that will bode well for us as human beings and what we need psychologically as well as what will bode well for getting Australia back performing economically. So I'm really hopeful that Australian businesses and business leaders in particular are paying attention to what their people are telling them has worked, what are the silver linings that are coming out of that, um, out of this time. And we're only partway through. It's the biggest psychological experiment of all time. So, <laughs> you know, we are only partway through this. We don't know where this is going to finish or end um, and I think, therefore, we've got to balance the fatigue side of things, which is some of the negatives. Um, we've got to balance the fatigue side of things with those silver linings. But I would be really encouraging everyone who's listening, who's in any level of um, influence inside a business, is to co-design what the future looks like of your business. Co-design how going back to work looks like. I've been horrified to hear um, 
some businesses forcing people back to work um, in in some jurisdictions, some areas around the country uh, where they can work from home, um, but they've been forced to go back into the office. And I think that is just appalling. Um, We've got to recognise different people respond differently in different times of stress. And COVID has certainly raised a huge amount of health anxiety and other stressors for people. So I would be really encouraging people to just listen to their people, engage in their people. Uh, They'll have some amazing inputs and insights that can actually help your business survive and get out of that struggle um, to survive and back into thriving. Yeah, because we've seen, I'm glad that, that that is the story because I harp on all the time around the fact that connection helps us cope more than anything and then a problem becomes far less impactful or heavy without necessarily even changing its size simply by connecting through it. We unfortunately have seen a huge rise in calls to Lifeline and Beyond Blue and etc. during the pandemic. So it is this toxic sense of loneliness and uncertainty that is getting to people at the moment, right? Look, I, I actually think it's great that we've seen an increase in calls to Lifeline True. Beyond Blue. Uh, to me, it is far better that people are not sitting on the couch at home on their own or even, you know, within a family unit and struggling and and not reaching out. So I think it's been fantastic that we've had, um, and it's not beyond, only Beyond Blue and Lifeline, there are many other helplines that are out there that have experienced increased um, call volumes. I think this is really, really good that Australians are recognising that there is help out there and it's, a, and it's online chats. It's not only via, via phone. Um, I do believe that we've got this great, um, this great opportunity to help people, though, get to the help that they actually need that's tailored to their needs. And this is, a, this is where, as you said earlier, the workplace can play an incredible role, is not to try to solve the mental ill health, uh, but to actually recognise that work can play and needs to play and does play when it's when it's good uh an incredible role in actually helping people get back to wellness and functioning in life Uh, so finishing work and you know sitting on the couch because uh you've been diagnosed with depression and getting out of the workplace is not necessarily the very best thing for for the vast majority of people who experience mild to moderate mental health conditions uh staying connected in some way shape or form to their work colleagues and their workplace is actually far better for the vast majority okay so we've got to we've got to help employers recognize stay at work during a mental health condition is far better than returning to work because you've had time out of the workplace. Yeah, and all the research supports that, that that getting better at work is better than trying to get better outside of work unless it's extremely acute and then therefore short-term is good but medium to long-term is not good. So uh, you said that there's 11, 11 key actions that we have out of the 40 um, and this is all publicly available information that's downloadable in the Superman website. We've only got 10 minutes left. So can you rapid fire at me just for the sake of our listeners that don't want to download the report, those 11 top 11 indicators or actions? I certainly can. I'll so just, first... I'll give you a second to pull that up. Sorry that I, that wasn't uh, in our all... briefing. All good. All good. 
So what I'll say just to start with, there are three that are associated with uh, education and professional development. There are five that are much more around policies and practices. And the most important thing about the policies is that they need to be visible and in action across the workplace. There's no point just having them on an intranet that nobody knows about. They have to be visible. And that's when they become uh, tangible and impactful. And then the last three, we would probably describe it a bit more as business as usual type of activities that are less specific mental health related. So the first three are around the training and professional development. The number one is leaders regularly participate in mental health and wellbeing training, and I've talked to the importance of that and the impact of that, and it's massive. The second is just around general staff having access to mental health and wellbeing education. The third is around staff having professional development opportunities, and the science behind that is that when we learn and grow and our brains learn and grow, it's actually good for our wellbeing. And we love progress. As human species, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) we do. do. Uh, Number four is around mental health and wellbeing policies that are visible and in action. Number five is effective policies and practices on bullying and harassment. And please underscore effective. Mm -hmm. Number six is good return to work policies and practices. And when we say good, it's about people coming back in a really supported way into changes and accommodations uh, that really support their return to gradual return to work if needed. Number seven is good change management. Now this is about, um, you know, changes every single day in every business in, in every industry, but good change management practices are where we have clear, supportive and positive change principles in place. So this is about good regular communication and transparent communication about the change, about the why of the change and engaging people in the change is far better from a wellbeing perspective than a dictating type of change from the top down. So it's about how we do change management. Number eight is around EAP or other confidential counselling services and supports that are available to people, really important. Number nine is acknowledging people for good work. So this is the reward and recognition, the thank yous that don't cost Mm. anything but mean an enormous amount. Um, Number 10 is around transparent decision-making. So this speaks to a little bit again around that change management, but in any decisions that are being made across an organisation, having a level of transparency as to the rationale that comes behind the decision and what the decision is, is far more effective in really helping people adjust to the decision that's being made. Our psychology means that we as humans like to control things. So when a decision is made or change happens outside our control, the more we can help people to control it themselves by giving them information to make sense of it and that making meaning is really important uh, makes a difference. And then number 11 is work-life, family integration and supports and practices. And I think we've seen a massive uptick in that this year and the benefits of that this year. You know, working from home, as it used to be sort of, you know, the the uh, um, spoken about that, you know, people didn't actually work, that they uh, sort of took the afternoon off or, or whatever. Mm. I think we've actually recognised that that's a furphy, it, you know, people are 
mature, they're adult, they're capable of working from home. It doesn't mean their dishwasher's on or their washing machine's on and, you know, they're about to hang the clothes out or take the dog for a walk around the block at lunchtime. Yeah, absolutely. But the vast majority of people benefit from having really good work-life integration, particularly for people whose roles are as carers of children, of elderly people, of people with mental health or disability, um, and I think we've just got to recognise that Australians, by and large, need to be trusted to do a good job. And if you give them a good job to do, they're most likely to do it and do yeah. it really well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it's amazing summarising that into 11 actions because I know people, people like those very tangible points. And, and we've seen that if uh, companies, the more actions that a company employs the more it has a mentally healthy effect, right? So there is a correlation between action and outcome, a huge one, in fact, that the, the report showed. Absolutely. And likewise, mental health concerns are the most common reason for lower productivity this year, affecting three and five workers. So, you know, this is, a, this is another further cause to, uh, for action for workplaces is we've got to see more um, investment in workplace mental health. Those that have implemented at least eight tangible actions to improve the workforce's mental health and wellbeing consistently have higher proportions of workers that are more productive. Yeah. So, it, you know, the evidence is there. It, no matter the way we cut this data, Mitch, you know, the, you know whatever we look at it, the more organisations do, and this isn't just awareness raising, that's a great place to start, but this is about doing Um the more they do, the better it is for everybody, the workplace, the economy, our communities, and most definitely the Australian working population. Yeah, and obviously those those indicators that we just listed off then aren't um, collectively exhaustive. And, you know, I can think of two off the top of my head that I know work really well. One is storytelling to normalise stigma. Another is peer support programs to encourage help-seeking behaviour internally, which I think comes back to both of them accruing to this connection element, um, as well as other things like reviewing job demand and, and et cetera, et cetera. But the thing that I'm really proud of to see happening and this report validates is that there is a need to switch away from the externalization solution of mental health toward more of an internal focus one. And what I mean by that is, I think in years past, it's always been that thing that, that should be outside of the, of, the, of the corridors. And if and when it comes into the corridors, we send people back outside to deal with it. You know, EAP was basically the mental health strategy, period, full stop. What we're starting to realize is things like EAP has become a tactic in a much broader scope of a well-being plan that isn't just about sending people outside, but looking internally to say, how can we prevent anything that we're responsible for causing someone's mental ill health? And then if and when, even if it doesn't have something to do with this, how can we internally uh, try and support that person through recovery? Without, and a very important part to finish that sentence on, without necessarily taking on board liability or burden that isn't ours to hold. Because I really do feel for leaders who often say, I don't want to make things worse, but I also don't want to overstep my boundaries and become responsible for things that aren't mine. And I think that with the right amount of training and, and education and just general commitment, we can walk that line. It's not as black and white as we'd like it to be because we love control and certainty and absolutes, but we can find that really healthy balance. And there are companies all across the country that are, that are doing that. 
Look, I would totally agree. I think, you know, when you talk to most businesses, particularly in Australia these days, you know, we are in a knowledge economy. You know, the businesses talk about their number one assets are their people. So why would you outsource your number one assets well-being to a third-party provider that you're just contracting a transactional relationship with? It makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense. Mm. Why wouldn't you invest in the capability of your people leaders that can have that massive ripple on the pond effect across your entire workforce? Why wouldn't you invest in them having sustainable behaviour change levers such as effective mental health and wellbeing training coupled with system lever changes, which is your policies in action? Why wouldn't you invest internally to get the you know, the best out of the app, the most valuable asset that you have, which are your people. And I think it's not, you know, I don't want people to hear that and say, you know, this is all about monetization of humans. This is about recognising that we do, as as people, um, really want to be able to contribute. And, you know, the National Mental Health Commission talks about a contributing life. We do, as humans, want to be able to contribute to things that are bigger and better than ourselves and work and workplaces give us that opportunity to do that. So don't outsource, you know, the most important part of your business. It makes no sense to me whatsoever. Yeah. We are at time. Oh, my God. I think we could go on for about three and a half days, weeks, years, um, you and I chatting together. I I really hope that someone listening to this has got something from it, whether you're a business leader or an employee. It is a good news story, I think, all up. We we have a ways to go, but I think the, the cliff notes is that things have gotten better. Despite COVID, we have become closer and we are set in the right context to make a meaningful change uh depending on the decisions we make in the next few years will really shape the way that the next decade goes we've got a lot of people caring more than usual we've got a lot of big hearts out there wanting to do the right thing and um i think it's really important that we keep educating that that intention and motivation into productive actions uh, and you have definitely contributed to our ability to do that today Margot. so thank you so much for joining me Oh, Mitch, it's been an absolute pleasure. I could spend days and hours <laughs> definitely talking to you further. Uh, so feel free, if you are listening, to jump on the Superfriend website. The Indicators of a Thriving Workplace National Report 2020 is available free of charge to download. Into the coming months, we will be doing further profile reports that will look at particular industries. We do one for International Women's Day that looks at gender. Uh, So there'll be a range of different reports that we'll be releasing. The other thing that is available on the Superfriend website, again, for free, is a raft of resources and tools. So Mm. feel free to have a wander through the website. Uh, We are here to support any business in the country uh, and really happy to to make a, a positive contribution. And if you're ready as a business to get going and do, then uh, Superfriend is very happy to to support you in that journey, well and truly. But Mitch, thank Mm. you so much. It's been an absolute joy and pleasure as always. Thank you, my dear. Cheers. Emotions have a natural tendency to dissipate unless they get uh, reinforced. And so if there's more thoughts, more stories, more intentions come along. So the act of how am I leaving it alone is an act of not act adding more stories, adding fuel to it. So it might not go away in two minutes, but it then begins to relax and dissipate. And so rather than being the person who has to fix it, we become the person who makes space for the heart, the mind, to 
to relax and settle away itself. <laughs>